Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. It is uh, spring. Everybody in the Northeast and Midwest is probably dusting off the golf clubs and uh, might be time to look at some new clothing options. And uh, Beedratty has their Dratty Sport line, which is greatly expanded today. So, one item that I'd love to talk about is the new Blair Pullover. It is named after our mutual friend, Zach Blair. He's been on the show a few times, PGA Tour player. And uh, it's inspired by probably my favorite item in the Beedratty collection, the Russ sweatshirt. It's got that tech fabric, but it's still got all the great features in that Rush sweatshirt. So you've got the kangaroo pocket, everything, but it is unbelievably soft and it's got that tech, that sport fabric and uh, awesome piece. So that would be one of my uh, recommendations. And you can use the code TFE25 for 25% off at bdraddy.com. That is bdraddy, D-R-A-D-D-Y.com. Today's episode is with Jim Wagner. Jim is a partner uh, at Gil Hans Golf Design. Him and Gil have been building golf courses together since the mid-1990s. So I met up with him down in Jupiter at their new project at Jonathan's uh, Landing, and we talked about a wide range of topics. Hopefully, we'll do more of these. Um, he's got just so much stuff to talk about that... Uh, really enjoyable talk. So without further ado, here is Jim Wagner. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. start you off with a classic fried egg question right, well I've, I've never listened to the fried egg before that's so, good you know, I, i've never actually listened to any podcast before if you were gonna eat a piece of one piece of fruit the rest of your life which one would it be and why it would be a banana if banana is actually considered uh fruit it's fruit yeah. it's fruit yeah uh and it's a banana and i have uh for breakfast every day uh that and a cup of coffee and you're good to go for the rest of the day. I feel like when you're out on the site, you, you forget to eat a lot of times, right? Uh, you, you can, but I, I try to make sure that, you know, we have uh, three squares a day. You know, actually, in some of our projects, like when we did a hoopie, because we were out in the middle of nowhere, and there was an old hunting lodge at part of the uh, property. And uh, one of the uh, wives of the guy that worked for us, Seamus, his wife, Soren, uh, was traveling with him, and she's a great cook. What a, what a couple, a power couple of names, Seamus and, and Soren. It is, it is. It's awesome. They're awesome. They're an awesome couple. <laughs> so anyway, Soren, Soren is a great cook, and, you know, she was living in Statesboro, and uh, Hoopy's, what, 45 minutes from Statesboro, so it's kind of boring there. So we actually hired her uh, to come, and she would go into the hunting lodge, and we opened up a thing called Caveman Cafe. So every day we would show up at like 12 o'clock and she would have a full spread of food, you know, waiting for us. But you, you can't forget to eat, but it's important because you need the downtime. 
You know, who the hell wants to sit on a machine going back and forth for 10 hours straight? I don't know. Somebody might say, I'd love to sit on a machine all day if they they sit in an office chair all day. Yeah, that's true. You know, but I guess the guys that sit on a machine all day long are probably like, I really could uh, stand to go sit in an office chair for a while. <laughs> Everybody's job. This is like something that I think is universal. Everybody's job has shit. You know? It does. No matter what. Like, and I, I get so sick of people complaining about their job because it's like any job you have has shitty stuff about it, you know? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Every job has some shit that you have to handle and take care of. And that's the bad part of the job. It's managing the shit, right? What's, what's your shit? It's, it's having to deal with contractors. I mean, contractors are great, you know, necessary evil for the most part, right? But they tend to just do what they want to do at any given time. The problem is, is when they do what they want to do, it's usually at the absolute wrong time <laughs> and they do the wrong thing. You know, for people that are Seinfeld fans, right, Seinfeld fans, what they should do is go back and look at the episode where George decides to do everything opposite, right? If everything he's ever done, his natural instinct was wrong, <laughs> then doing the opposite would be right. So a majority of contractors, really what they should do is watch that episode and take that advice and then just do the opposite of what their natural instincts are, are or would be, and it'd be a home run every time. So, so if you're hiring contractors, do you know if they recommend something, do the opposite. Exactly. Insist on the opposite. Exactly. You know, from golf course construction down to a house painter, right? Just do the opposite that they say, and you'll be heading in the right direction. Yeah. Do you do you deal with contractors like on your house and stuff? And do you have a like? Are they? Is it similar across the board in your? You know, obviously you have. Massive dealings with contractors in golf construction, but is it consistent across the world? No. <laughs> the problem is, is like at home, like I have a wife, right? So when they start getting involved, then things get a lot tougher, right? Because then you have emotions that, you know, get involved with everything. And now you have to, you know, deal with that part of the, uh, the construction, right? On the golf end of things, you can take the emotion out, right? You can just pretty much tell them, like, this is the way it's going to be and this is how we're going to do it. You know, so you'd think that I'd be good at dealing with the contractors at home, but it's a complete opposite. Like I'm in the middle. We just this time last year, we signed a contractor to come in and replace all of our windows in our house and go with impact glass, right, for hurricanes. We are about maybe tomorrow will be one one year later, and they're still not done the job. So not finished the job. Already paid them the money, and I tore my bicep helping them. So, there you so, go. Not a glowing review. No, it's not. So, <laughs> don't get impact glass in your house. You're better off just moving. <laughs> what? Uh, some people have told me that you're like the best best person in the industry at dealing with contractors. Well, I hate to hell to see who the worst person was. <laughs> <laughs> what's 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 your key to success other than telling them? Like, do you do you just tell them to do the opposite of what they would naturally do? <laughs> well, for the most part, yes. You know. But you, you have to kind of somewhat work your way into it, right? Like just the guys here because we're, you know, on site here at Jonathan's Landing Old Trail Project. And the contractor's great and a really nice guy. He's doing an awesome job. But like I was saying earlier, at the worst possible time, they do the opposite of what you want. So we had an area on our third tee where we were going to just go ahead and build the tee and remove some of the environmental regu regulation type stuff and, and move it to another portion of the project. And I go out yesterday. And here they dug like a canal right through the middle of the third tee. So it's like, okay, great. 
So I had to tell the contract, I'm like, listen, you know, don't dig any more holes. Don't do anything uh, until, you know, you approve it with us because it's going to be wrong, you know. So you pretty much have to insinuate it as opposed to saying just do the opposite, right? Because then they'll start even thinking more, and that's the last thing you want them to do is think, right? All you need them to do is kind of follow directions. But it's just I think it's just a matter of staying on top of them and trying to explain to them what the vision is, which is the opposite of what they did for the last architect they worked for. That's, right? So they just develop bad habits from working for all these different people compared to the way you guys work. And that's probably the hardest thing is that they figure they work the way they work with everybody else and they'll be fine. Yeah. And because, and I mean, believe it or not, you know, since we still do all of our own shaping and all that good stuff, right? So we're extremely hands-on. Most contractors that we use to come in and, you know, do all the nuts and bolts stuff, right? The drainage, the the side laying and things of that nature, the non-artistic type stuff, right? But we still put together a huge book of specs, which pretty much lays out exactly what we want them to do. But I think the uh, most contractors who are reading the specs have attention deficit disorder, and they may get to about page 10, right, of 100. And then they just start looking at quantities as opposed to what the scope is. And all they do is bid on how they usually do work, right, which is not how we want work to be done. So when they come out and they start working, they just think that they're going to go ahead and do it the way they've always done. And it's not the case, you know. So it takes about six to nine holes to knock out the prior architect and the prior jobs they've done out of their system, right? Then it takes another six or so for them to understand what you want to do. And then the last two or three holes, it's easy, you know. But then you're going home and you're starting all over again. What's your process for finding the guys that work for you guys that do the shaping and, and different things? Like, how do you guys go about that? Well, what we tend to do is we're driving, you know, going from one job to the next, right? You so just pick them up on the road? Exactly. We look for the first guy who's hitchhiking, <laughs> and we slow down, and we ask them, you know, how much money they have or if they have any beer, and then we throw them in the back of the car, and then we just go ahead and ask them a couple questions and see if they have a driver's license. And if they do, then we throw them out. Right. If they don't have a driver's license, then we, we keep them and then we put them on the dozer and it works out perfect. <laughs> now, actually, what we do is uh, a lot of our guys have worked with us in the past. Right. So like, you know, Neil Cameron, who's been with us the longest, uh, he was just getting out of college when we did Castle Stewart. So Neil was just out of college and he was working for the uh, for the club and enjoyed what he was doing. And he said, hey, I really like this work. You know, can I come work with you guys? And, you know, we took him on to the job, and then he's been with us ever since. And then uh, sometimes it's just word of mouth. Hey, we're looking for somebody. Have anybody good? You know, and people say, yeah, you know, talk to so-and-so. And then, like, Seamus. Seamus was somebody that had done a lot of golf course construction work in the past, and he was living. He has a house in Petaluma, California. And we were looking for somebody, and he came down to Doral and, you know, started with us there, and he's been with us now. That's been, what, maybe eight years, something like that. So, you know, it works out uh, It works out good. But, yeah, we like to bring them on. We like to work them, uh, see what they're like, see if they have any talent. And then uh, really what we're looking for is good people. We want people that are funny, you know. What was it like working with that client at Doral? <laughs> well, you talk about, uh, you know, entertaining. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing that we have to remember as we talk about this, right, I have to preface it all, but this was well before running for president, right? Yeah. And everything we've seen for the past, you know, couple of years, okay? But, you know, during that time, it was just like working, you know, he, he was a developer. He was a real estate developer, right? So that says a lot right there in a lot of cases. But... He was engaged. He was hands-on. 
you know, we had a good time, you know, building the golf course and doing the work. And, you know, at that point in time in his life, it was actually, you know, a lot of fun and, and a funny person, you know. So it was a, you know, it was a good job. You know, this is funny. Like, why would you go to be president of the United States from that? Well, yeah, exactly. You know, from that. Where, where <laughs> Building you can, golf courses. Yeah. You know, when, when I look at, you know, all the stuff that's happened, I think back to them like, wow, what happened? What went wrong? You know? Uh-huh. So it's just like, it was crazy. But no, it was fun. You know, you talked about a hoopie with having the Caveman Cafe. And it seems like, you know, you guys really like working from you. From everything, all accounts I get, you know, and can see from the outside. And I'm, I'm curious... In t- terms of what do you guys do to make sure they're happy? Like what, what, you know, in the industry, obviously shapers kind of float around a lot, but it seems like yours stay with you everywhere. Uh, that's because you hold back half their pay every year and we force it on until the next year. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> they a, think back to when they got picked up on the road. Yeah, too, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They're happy to be with us. Yeah. It's like a golden parachute. You know, uh, for that. No, I just, I think like one of the things that Gil and I try to do with everything is we just want to have fun, right? When we go out and we work, we want to have fun. And we want our, we, we want our guys to be able to have fun and just kind of go and, and be creative. And, and, you know, you're creating golf courses. There's no reason not to have fun. You're outside every day, you know, 90% of the time the weather's great. You're having a good time. So, I mean, we, we just try to keep it light. You know, and but plus we we've been very fortunate, and I think really the key is, and you only want to get down to it, it's money, right? Think about it. a lot of the the shapers that go around, they may do a six or eight month stint with somebody, and then they may not work again for four or five six months, and then they come back again. Well, that's great, you know, because they're making good money while they're working, but they're also spending good money while they're not working. So I think you know we've been very fortunate that we've had work, and what the way we schedule out work is really based on timelines. So we try to fill as much of the year as we possibly can. So, you know, our guys are, are usually, you know, you know, 10, 11 months a year, they're able to work. And, and that's a huge thing, you know, because they love to work. So I think, you know, in the end, it's having fun and money. <laughs> Do you ever think about how, like, different it would be if there were, instead of 10 to 20 golf projects a year, like 100 to 200 for you, for you and the guys that work for you? I think uh, about this all the time. If there, it, well, I, I wouldn't like that. You know, that's, yeah. that's like way too much work. <laughs> you know, uh, you mean if there was a lot of work going on, what it would be like? Yeah, because obviously, I I always think like there are guys that if it was the mid '90s that are shaping golf courses that would be building their own golf courses just sure. because there, frankly, aren't enough jobs around to have a you know 150 busy architects. Yeah. Well, you know, I've never really thought about that. You know, you think about it, so I don't know what, what what's in your I head. Think about you know? it too much. Yeah, <laughs> well, my head is just like a ping pong ball bouncing around uh, all the time. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I think it would change everything. I think the desire, the creativity. You know, the 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 cool part about the work that we do is if your project is six or eight months long, it's six or eight months long, right? So the creativity is there; it flows for that long. If you had to do that, you know, continually, I think it would be tough. You know, so if you leave one project and go to another one, it's a whole new ball game, right? There's a new set of, you know, conditions. There's a new, you know, phrases. There's new design elements. You know, so it kind of keeps light and fresh. So my question would be, if you're doing a hundred or two hundred projects, or there are that many projects out there, you know, in general, is it just going to like basically water down, you know, the excitement and the fun of, of golf? It, it probably would. You know, it's like put it this way: like you can probably equate it to the NFL versus the NBA. NFL, 16 games, 
it's great. Every game means a lot, right? The NBA, 82 games, you know, Shaq and the big stars, they don't play till January. You know, and then they get ready for the playoffs. So the beginning of the year is just kind of watered down. It's, it's too much. You know, so I think that would probably be what you would see. I mean, it would kind of be my guess. Then you got baseball. That was like that was like the early 90s. Yeah, well, baseball's <laughs> meant to be boring, right? It's meant to kill, like, you know, the long summer, just sitting around doing nothing. But, yeah, that's way too long. You know, last year was better. You know, yeah. the COVID was good for some things. Um, you guys obviously have grown. I imagine you think, think back to, like, when you guys were just starting out to now. How, how much has your job changed as you guys have grown? Yeah, I mean, it, it's changed a lot, right? Because what happens is when we first started, it was really just you had one job, right? And it was the job you were working on. Maybe you had another master plan or something like that that you were working on. But you would be able to just concentrate on that one job. There was no outside stuff. When you finished up the work at the end of the day, you could go home, have dinner, put the TV on, watch a ball game or whatever, go to bed, wake up the next day, and you know, you're back on the job, you know, shaping or whatever, you know, you're doing. But now it's you're still doing that because that's the fun part of the job. But all the other demands, you know, all the emails you get uh, preparing for other jobs, you know, the phone calls you get during the day from the other projects that are either just starting up, going through permitting, you know, design changes or winding down and, and finalizing the contractors, you know, pay and just kind of doing all that kind of stuff. It's, it's almost a full time job. You know, like really, I could probably take at least one week, if not, you know, a week and a half to two weeks every month and just do that part of the job, you know, but you have to kind of regulate and be like, okay, you know, you want to be on site because you want to be part of that, but you still need that time. And if you want to have a life outside of work and be able to enjoy Saturday or try to play golf or go out to dinner with your wife, you know, that's tough. You, you've you've got to balance it, really. You know, that's what it comes down to, and being efficient, right? I, I imagine because like the the interesting thing that you guys get into is like your business work, which you know the the permitting, all the operational stuff has grown so much. But the stuff that made you made you grow into where you're so popular is the creative work. So you have to keep doing that, right? Correct. Yeah, and that's the fun part, right? That's why we keep doing it. If we had to do all the uh, permitting stuff and deal with the agencies and deal with the budgeting and write the specs and do all these stupid Zoom calls, right? You waste more time setting up a Zoom call than it was to be on the Zoom call and, and finalize what the issue was, right? But uh, yeah, that's, you know, it's just, it, it becomes a big part of the job. If we had to do that every single day, you know, we probably wouldn't be in the business. You know, I'd be a house painter. Or a contractor. Okay, exactly. And I'd have somebody yell at me. I would do it on purpose. Actually, you know what I'd do? I'd go back to the golf course and I'd get on the maintenance staff and I'd cut fairways. And I'd purposely like scalp the rough and do like a lot of crazy shit just to make the uh, superintendent like insane. Go or, or be the cup cutter and put the cups on like the top of mounds or on like 6% slope, you know, like we see when we go out and play golf. Seems like you you always have a unique relationship with your superintendent. So it's always a very good one. They love you. But you like to you like to ruffle their feathers a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean we have to again. We're having fun, so we, we got to tweak them a little bit, you know. Uh, but in the end, those guys make us look the best, right? You know, and uh, you know a guy like Russ, you know Russ, right? Yeah. Russ is great. You know he's a good friend. He's great, but you know we've gotten into arguments and you know ruffling each other feathers and you know and doing that sort of thing. But you know that's good because really ultimately what we're all trying to do, right? We're all trying to get. The other people, whether it's a superintendent and us or us and the superintendent, right? 
to think like them, to work with them, and to be a part of it. So all we're doing is trying to strive for perfection in our own little, you know, corner of the golf course, right? From a design standpoint, we're trying to force as much of the design and, you know, the design elements and the understanding of what we want on them. And they're trying to do the same with us on the maintenance end of thing. But in the end, you're really just melding it together, mm-hmm. right? And trying to work together on everything. But it's really just basically out of the, the desire to be excel in what you're doing. That's all. Yeah, it, with the with the superintendent working with them, I, obviously I you've worked with a ton. But in terms of the qualities, like what you know, do you want them to be hands on, vo- like have a strong voice with like what's going on? Tell you if they foresee any sort of issue. Like, can you talk a little bit through some of the qualities of the best guys that you've worked with? Well, well, that's it right there. It's 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 them wanting to be involved, to be hands on, right? We want to give them all the tools that they need to be successful in the in the agronomic end of things, the science of, of the site, right? We need them to be there, okay? There's no way we're going to be able to understand the property like these guys have if they've been there a long period of time or if it's a new site, the way they're thinking about the property. We think about it differently, right? We look at it from a design standpoint, right? First two-dimensional and then the third dimension. We're not looking at all the other uh, environmental conditions. I mean, we do a little bit, but there's so much out there. I mean, the science behind the, uh, the uh, superintendent end of things, the agronomy, is huge. And people forget that. So we need the superintendents to be hands-on, to be involved, to do research, to, to really you know, think outside the box, but to work with us from a design standpoint and understand the design. So you know, most of the guys are the ones that are out there every day, you know, Russ, or, you know, Paul Latchaw, guys like that, they're involved, right? They want to be involved. They want to come out. They ask questions. They try to understand what you're doing, right? They know in their mind exactly what they want to do under the ground. And then we just have to give them the freedoms to, to go ahead and do that. But if you can work together in doing that, uh, that to me is the best success. But they have to be hands-on. They have to be there. Let's, uh, let's talk about the place we're at here. We're at Jonathan's yep. Landing, yep. Um, South Florida. Yep. You, your hometown, hometown uh, area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My adopted hometown. Yep, yep. Being, that's a nice move. Being somebody that's Midwest, spending a lot of time down here this winter, I don't blame you for coming yeah, down here. You get it. Yeah, you know. And if you like to play golf, you know, there's no better place to be. Like yeah. we were in Philadelphia. My wife and I moved down here seven years ago. Who the hell wants to try to play golf in Philadelphia? November, December, January, February, right? It's just it's impossible. That's how Pine Valley started, though, right? Yeah, so they say, right? You know, it was probably cold now there. I mean, now it's close this time. Yeah, time. exactly, exactly. So, but yeah, I mean, how much warmer was it? You know, a couple degrees or something. Uh, but uh, anyhow, so it's uh, so yeah, we, we we moved down here, and then this job came about. What it is is Jonathan's Landing has fifty-four holes, right? They have two properties. They have an in-town property, which is you know your typical Florida golf, right? It's uh, you know, 18-hole golf course, homes, surrounded by homes, a little bit of intercoastal, you know, frontage. Pretty straightforward golf course, right? Uh, then they have this property, which is, you know, people are familiar with Jupiter. It's kind of, it's it's west western part of Jupiter. They call this area Jupiter Farms, right? And really when you cross over 95 in the turnpike, the landscape of Florida changes, right? It changes from terracotta roofs and asphalt and uh, palm trees to you know, open fields, you know, horses, pine trees, 
oak trees. Uh, so it's a totally different landscape. So when we were brought here to take a look at the project, it was by Neil Lockie, who was a director of golf at that point in time. And uh, he had heard about a hoopie and talked to uh, Todd, who was the uh, pro at a hoopie. And him and Todd were friends. So he got the lowdown about a hoopie and the whiskey routing at a hoopie and how it was a shorter golf course. Uh, it was just kind of a match play, you know, fun and how much people enjoy it. I mean, a lot of the comments we get on our projects that we've ever done, because we've done some really big and bold stuff, right? And we've done some smaller things like the whiskey routing at a hoopie. We get probably more comments about the fun people had on the whiskey routing at a hoopie than we do on the other golf courses. So it kind of, you know, clicked a little bit. And uh, so they brought us in and said, hey, we have this, you know, old Arthur Hills golf course, which is built in 1982. Uh, and it's just tired and old, and they kind of wanted to repurpose the land. And what could we do with it under the kind of premise of what we did at a hoopie? So we just said, listen, the best bet is like, because the property dictates anything but your typical Florida golf, is we're going to create something that is not Florida, right? As best we can for being in Florida. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we took a look at the site. Again, the, the, nat the more the natural vegetation, uh, and then we started to think about what is Florida golf, right? The typical Florida golf. It's homes. Okay. Well, here I think there's only about five or six homes that you can see from the golf course, but they're not on the golf course. They're not on any golf hole. You can just see them through the trees or on the other side of the water. Two is lakes, right? There's water everywhere. You look at the Honda this week, you know, guy, there's a guy yesterday on the 11th hole. I think he took his clothes off or something, right? I don't know why I took his shirt off. You know, that didn't really seem to it's make any sense. It's become like a new trend. Like yeah. these guys get down to their boxers to hit a shot. It's yeah. like you could just have pants that are dirty for 20 minutes. I know. And I don't know who the guy was, but it's not like he was showing off his physique or anything. You know, he looked like he was like a 75-year-old body on the guy. But anyhow, so there's water everywhere. There's water on the right side of the hole. There's water on the left side of the hole. And if it's not water, there's a house, houses, right? So here there was some water on the inner, uh, the inner portion of the property. So we said, okay. Let's move as much water as we possibly can to the outside of the property, right? And it was like Gil said, he's like, this would be cool if we could kind of do like a Chicago golf type feel or a Seminole feel where you go out there and all you see is golf, right? Because usually in Florida, you don't see the next hole, right? Because it's on the other side. You got to go through somebody's backyard, you know, to get to the next tee. So it's like we just went under that, that premise and just golf everywhere. Mm -hmm. So instead of missing – if you miss the fairway now – you're not either, you know, you're not in a lake, you're not in some Home Depot, you know, garden center backyard, you know, with a bouncy bounce and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You're probably in another fairway or you're in a rough in between fairways. And we opened up the property, cleared, you know, several acres of ground just so we could get that feel. And there's a couple places where you can pretty much see the entirety of the golf course. We're limited a little bit because the golf course is shaped like a U. And the center part of the top center part of the U is the, uh, whatchamacallit, is like the clubhouse in the parking lot. But you can probably at several points on the property see 12 to 15 holes. You know, so it's just anything but typical Florida golf. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what everything was built here around a central premise. And it seemed to me, it seems like, you know, there's going to be some new projects coming up down here that change the way people, the perception of Florida golf. And this is obviously one of them. What I'm really interested in is reworking a previous site that was built, you know, with what was in vogue, containment mounting and different, you know, it, a routing that wasn't really walking friendly. How have you gone about taking a, a site that had golf that was, you know, maybe not your type, your typical style of golf and taking it and making it your style of golf? 
I, th- I think the first key when you, when you do that, right, is when you're going through the routing phase is not to look at the old golf course, right? Just pretend it's not even there. You know, so you, you have your, your topo map and you're working off a plan. And it'll be funny because you'll, you'll go into a committee meeting with people and they'll be like, you just say, we're talking about like the 16th hole. And they're like, the 16th hole, which hole is that? Oh, that's our third hole. And now they start speaking in terms of what the golf course is before we get there. And you're speaking in other terms because, and they're kind of shocked that you don't know what hole they're talking about. But we don't want to know what hole they're talking about, right? Because if you get locked into that, it would almost be like, and people have kind of asked some of these questions before in different ways, but it would almost be like trying to write music with music on in the background. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you got that tune in your head and now you're like, you're, you're starting to write towards that. So you just kind of eliminate all that, right? Try to figure out the best routing. And the cool thing here is, although it's heavily regulated, the regulations were that from like a water standpoint is all we had to do is make sure we had the same square footage of water, you know, pre our work and post, right? So that's pretty easy. And then we just start looking at moving everything to the outside and getting it out of play. But, you know, you, you kind of got to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But the easiest way, forget there's even a golf course there. Mm-hmm. You know? And then what do you do with all the mounts? Well, actually, some of the mounds have turned out to be pretty cool. You know, they're on the outside of old dog legs, right? And now, like our 16th hole, those mounds are on the outside of some golf hole, right? Uh, that looked weird as the outside of a dog leg, right? And then with all, you know, catch basins in front of it because the water couldn't actually move to the lake that was on the other side of the mounds, right? I never understand that. It, it, that's my one of my pet peeves is when you see a basin right next to the lake. Yeah. And, and one of the problems here, it was wet, right? And it, I mean, you're, you're out in the Everglades for the most part. It was wet. Right. But then you look and you're like, okay, well, there's a lake there, but there's six foot mounds between the fairway and the lake. And then there's just the catch basin. So it's like, well, maybe if they would have taken the dirt from the mounds and put it into the middle of the fairway and increased the slope across the fairway, they could have, you know, sheet flowed everything into the lake. But like in some cases, like on our 16th hole, these mounds that were on the outside of some dog leg and we filled the lake in uh, is now just off the carry of the tee. So you stand back at where the tee side is and you look at the green like we could keep those mounds. Because they kind of interrupt your view of the green, and we could build this kind of just green that sits at grade, and it would be really interesting, you know, something that you don't see in Florida. It would be like, if people know our work, it would be similar to, like, say, 8 at Boston Golf Club, you know, where you're sitting on the tee, and you got the low bumps and rolls and the light chop in front of you, and you see part of the green that sits out there, but you don't see all that foreground. So, actually, we're using those mounds the way they're falling into the, into the landscape to our advantage. It's one of the most interesting things I, I think about with all those old older golf courses from the 60s, 70s. The, all the mounding's on the outside of the hole, and if they would have just done all the work with the mounding on the inside of the hole, mm-hmm. like you think about some of the greatest holes in the world, and they have the like really irregular mounding and hills throughout them. And it's mm-hmm. like, why did you do all that work over there when you could have done it in here, and it would have yielded? Like, I don't know if you've been to Santa Anita. And I have been to Santa Anita, yeah, yeah. Like the mounding in the middle of the fairway there is just utterly unbelievable. Yep. It's like one yep. of the coolest, like thing, some of the coolest stuff I've seen at a at a municipal go- course is just these like what you know. If you fast forwarded forty years, they would have all been on the outside. But this this guy that you know one time architect just built them all in the middle of the fairway. Yeah, no, it's great. And I actually went out there with Tommy Nakarado, yeah. you know, n- numerous years ago when they were talking about redoing it. 
It was great. I mean, yeah, it's like one of the holes out there, the narrows, right? It has the mounting right down the middle of the uh, fairway up by the green. Ten, right? I think it was ten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is such a cool little it, short par four. It, it, it is so cool. It's so cool. And actually, that that par four there uh, actually inspired a little bit of what we did at four to Hoopy. Right? It was kind of the same, a little bit of the same thought thought process where you get a power slot and you can you know use that to funnel the ball into the green type thing. But yeah, no, I, I don't know why they don't. I I, I just I don't understand. You know, but I agree with you. They, they tend to take all the dirt and they just pile it up around the outside of play. I guess I guess they feel containment mounding is is the way to go. You know? You know, one of the best ways I've heard it described, and it, it applies to this project so well, it was Jay Blasey told me once, he was like, you know, if you think about building architecture like a house, you know, there was an era where everybody needed as many small little rooms in a house as they could. And like, you know, it'd be like your kitchen, your living room. But like now everybody realizes, hey, like we want like sprawling open design, like where everybody feels comfortable when they're in a bigger space, you know, and one that's more connected. And that's really kind of what golf went through, where everything was siloed off. And it was like, this is the 11th hole and you see nothing else from here except for 11. No, you're right. And then the places that didn't do it with dirt and mounding, they planted trees. Right. So it's pretty easy when you come here, like, listen, if you cut down the trees. And you remove the mounting. Now you're actually being able to see the people that you're, you know, members at the same club with, or see other, you know, guests of the club. Or if you're uh, at a public golf course, you know, to see people. The fun part is, is to see other people. If you know them and you're passing each other, you can give them a little bit of a rib shot, right? You can have some fun with them. Or if you're on a green, they're on a tee. You know, they hit a bad drive. You know, you can yell over at them, right? That's part of having fun. Right. That's part of it. Or if you don't know the people, you kind of watch their shot if they're playing a hole in front of you and try to see what goes on or say, man, that guy sucks. You know what I mean? But that, that it's fun. Right. It, it's kind of entertaining. And that's part of really what we're doing. We're going out to play golf for hopefully three and a half to four hours and not five or six and uh, and be entertained. Right. With your own skill level or watching other people do stupid stuff. And they're golfers are going to do stupid stuff. One of your big projects that it's all done. PGA Frisco. Built with major championships in mind, but obviously big PGA facility with their headquarters moving down there. What's it like having like an 18-month growing? Uh, you know, it's great for us because, you know, we don't have to do it. <laughs> uh, actually, we were talking because we have Roger uh, Meyer, who's the superintendent uh, there. He was uh, in town yesterday because we're going to do this golf course down at West Palm Beach. You know, it has a little bit of PGA of America influence. And uh, so Roger came out just to look at things. But he said, yeah, it's, po- it's probably close to uh, like three years, you know, from a growing standpoint. Uh, and in, in this case, actually, you know, we needed it to our advantage because the site was a great site. But going through all the environmental restrictions and some of the, the needs of being able to host a big tournament, you know, the site got changed dramatically with earthwork and adding wetlands and all that crazy stuff. Right. To get everything out of the 100 year floodplain and the soil in Texas. It's terrible, right? It's just it, it it can barely hold itself up. Can, can you explain to a layman? You know, I'd I'd like to meet a layman yeah. sometime. Yeah. I, you know, where did that or term lay come woman. from? <laughs> yeah, like where yeah. did the term come from? But anyways, explain explain it in like a layman's terms. Like soil. Like why is Texas is bad? Why is uh, a hoopies great? From like a technical, like building a golf course. Well, I, you know, it, it would probably be under under the uh, premise of like, say you're cooking, right? If you want to simplify it, right? It's you're like, a layman. Yeah, and you're oh yeah, you're you're a lay cook, right? <laughs> and say you're making a pizza dough, okay? 
and you got all this flour piled up, right? And you start pouring the water in the flour, right? And the flour will absorb the water and it'll just go through, right? That is what a hoopie is. You can just keep pouring water on it and there'll be no issues, okay? The problem with whatchamacall with, say, Texas is, is that now you've added, added the water uh, to your flour and you only have X amount of flour. We'll say you have a cup of flour. And like an idiot, you put four cups of water in it, right? Now it almost turns into a soup. But you still got to make that same pizza crust. So you try to pack it together, and the more you work it, the wetter it gets. And then you try to pile it up or put it into a little ball, and it just kind of sloughs off, right? That's, that's the material in Texas because it gets to a point that it can't hold any more moisture, which is pretty much right away, and then it can't hold itself up. You know, like, for instance, our job in Thailand, it was uh, an old uh, shrimp farm, I think, at one point, right? Shrimp farm. A shrimp farm, yeah. Yeah, so those Thai shrimp, you know, those big uh, U, U6s and U8s that you get in the bag, that you know, that's what they do. They, they farm raise the shrimp, right? So it's just obviously all water, you know, and they're raising the uh, shrimp. But the soil there was so bad, and somebody actually phrased it perfectly. It's like if you got a, a bowl of pudding, right, and it's in the refrigerator and you take it out, you can push your thumb on that top of that pudding, you know, with a little bit of pressure. But at a certain point, your finger's going to go through and you're going to be in the pudding. Right. And that's and that's kind of what the soil was in Thailand. And it's not really that dissimilar in in Texas. It's just it's the composite of the soil and it's just it can't hold the amount of moisture that, you know, Mother Nature is providing. And it just sloughs off, just turns to nothing. So then when you're working in the dirt, how do you how do you I th- I'm thinking about now the last time I made tried to make tried to make pizza and the crust just it was awful. I couldn't do anything with it. Yep. yep. But what do you do? How do you make it work in that? You kind of push it and hope <laughs> that it holds up, you know, because you're still trying to be creative, right? Yeah. You know, you look at a lot of golf and you can look at a lot of golf in Florida, right? Uh, since we're down here and you've probably played some of the courses. Everything is very simple. These long, simple lines, you can tell they're all pretty much created by, you know, bulldozers and stuff like that. From our standpoint, you know, you need to be more creative, right? You need to come up with different situations. You need to come up with a little bit of a, you know, uh, abruptness, right? And you need to kind of break things up. So you've got to go ahead and just keep working. Or what will happen is the soil may not be consistently bad. There may be sections of soil or soil elsewhere that is better. Then you got to be able to bring that stuff in and use it to create what you need to create where you know you want abrupt side slopes and things of that nature and hold it together. But in the end, if you can get it to hold up through construction and if you can try to drain it and divert the water and you can get grass on it, it will eventually hold itself in place, right? And you asked the question earlier about the superintendent. If they understand what we want to do, right, and they know how important because they're hands-on that we need to have that sort of stuff in there, they're going to continue and they're going to work it. They're going to make it a priority that that stays that way. Maybe it's changing grass variety. Maybe it's going ahead and adding a drain. Or maybe it's them, like if you get a a 20-foot crack in the slope and it sloughs off, right, to come back in and patch it, okay? Then maybe the next time you get a bad rain or something happens, it's only 10 feet that they know it's less, and they know how important it is. So eventually through it, it it'll, it'll be fine. They'll make sure they take care of it. But if they're not hands-on and they look at it like, oh, my God, this is a maintenance nightmare, then they're just going to go ahead and they're going to add dirt and make it a you know a shitty side slope you know, when you're going to be left with nothing. Yeah, because then to, if they make it a softer one, make it easier on maintenance, it loses the abruptness. Exactly, yeah. And the abruptness is maybe what you want from a play standpoint. You may want it from a visual standpoint. There's a lot of different things, right? That... One thing when I walked Pinehurst 4 with Ben from your guys' crew, 
and Seamus was there for a little while and they talked about blending everything in with with the surrounds, like creating these horizon lines. But also creating abruptness is something I never really think about. The abruptness, because that draws your eye to things, right? Is that the idea behind it? It kind of is. I mean, abruptness is for a lot of reasons, right? It can draw your eye towards something or away from something, right? It can add, it can add you know, a play value where, you know, you see the abruptness and you're trying to stay away from the abruptness and it causes you to be in a, in a, in a bad place on the other side of the green. You know, so, yeah, and, and it has to be dictated by the site, right? You look at all the great golf courses, right? And I always look at Marion, right? I look at Marion for everything because, one, I think it's one of the best golf courses in the country, if not in the world, right? But almost every single, single architectural element has been broken at Marion, right? If, the, if, so, if you took somebody out and took them to 16 green or 17 green and you said to them, look how great this is, they would think you're nuts, right? The front of 16 green and that, you know, the big upslope coming in out of the quarry, I mean, that's abruptness, right? And that's a, that's a great part of Marion. You know, a modern-day owner may look at that and be like, why are we wasting the money to have that green? Right? But it's an important part of the design elements. You know, uh, yeah, like unpinnable surface. Yeah. I, I think that unpinnable surface is such a, so much of a magic of greens. But then you see that's like the first thing to go when they cut maintenance costs. Like, well, we can't put a pin there. We shouldn't have it. Yeah, no, and that's what you hear. And that's we again go back to the superintendent, the important part of those guys. You know, Steve Rabideau, you know, and and Wingfoot and places like that. Right. You know, you have to embrace that stuff. You know. And, and not worry about the maintenance. Look at those greens, you know, at Wingfoot and the sharp drop-offs on the backside of some of those greens, right? If the superintendent isn't willing to try to mow those greens out and get to those to those points on, you know, the old, you know, uh, pad of the green uh, before the drop-off, and they say, well, listen, I can't cut that. You know, how my guy's going to turn? Then over time, you end up with 10 feet of rough between the edge of the green and the drop-off, which defeats the purpose of the drop-off, right? So it's just, you know, you need to have that stuff, and people have to understand that it's part of the game. And you also need to have the greens that lay on, on grade of the ground, right? You need to have that. You need to have simple flowing lines. But I think if you have too much of one and not enough of the other, you know, whatever it might be, then you're, you're losing that, that excitement, that, that difference, you know, that, that interest, because after a while it becomes the norm. I think you just hit on something is those lay of the land, those, you know, sometimes benign or looking things that restraint, you almost have to exercise restraint. Is that something that's learned with experience? Like I, you know, sometimes when I go see places, I just think, God, you know, if, if you just took your foot off the gas every once in a while, it's sometimes because like you go to places and you're like, God, the best hole, some of the best holes are the ones that don't look like the best holes right from, you know, what you see. No, you're absolutely right. And that, you know, that's one of the things Gil, you know, really loves is just anytime we go visit a golf course and stuff that we do, it's just greens laying kind of flat on the ground, right? Because you're right. And the thing that we see, and, you know, you can call it Mr. Potato Head or Mrs. Potato Head or whatever we're allowed to call it nowadays, right, uh, is that a lot of times a, a lot of people, when they look at, at golf course architecture or – don't have maybe the experience, right? Is that they feel everything needs to come up out of the ground, right? And it's like, okay, and that's where you get some of the mounding, right? That's where you get the greens, where you get everything that comes up in, in, in the air. And that's why I call it Mr. Potato Head. It's like almost taking the ear of Mr. Potato Head and sticking on the top of the head, right? So I think that's the kind of stuff that you have to be, you know, aware of is like, listen, you know, keeping it natural is great and laying it on the ground 
But you don't always want that. At some point, you know, having some of the abruptment or something pop up is also is also good. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's is, is it not doing something almost tougher than doing something sometimes. Probably, probably most most of the time. Yeah, not doing something is probably a lot harder than doing something, right? Because you always feel you have to do it, and you're always looking at stuff. And you know, the one time I happened to uh, go onto your site, you know, there was an article: big golfers, small golf, right? You just had one that came out. It was big golf or small golf or something. You didn't write that one, but somebody did, right? Yeah. You know, but not so much, you know, to that article, uh, but just in general, right? It's like we're kind of talking about the same thing. It's like, is there things that become too much? Is it harder? Is it more? Are you thinking too much, right? And, and that's true when you're putting stuff out there because when you look at stuff in two dimension, you can come up with all these great ideas. It's when you translate that into the third dimension, right? How hot does that need, green need to be up in the air? Can it sit flat? You know, and it's it's the restraint of trying to keep it flat. It's not easy to do. I can tell you that. How long did it take you to figure out what something I'm reading Pete Dye's book right now? And he talks all the time about what something looks like in the ground. And then when you put grass on it, it how it changes and like how it all of a sudden is way more severe than it looks in the ground. Are you still getting better at that? Or is that something that you like kind of like talk about that? Yeah, well, I don't think it's anything that you, you really grasp the concept of right away. I think I think every job you do, you're going to miss something like that. Right. You know, because it's hard. You're just saying, so I put grass on. But sometimes, you know, when you grass things, it, it, it feels like it gets softer, you know. So you so can, it can go both ways. It, it can go both ways, you know. And I think a lot of it has to do with the third dimension and what you're looking at. Right. If you could take away the backdrop, if you can take away everything around you and you could specifically look at that green site and say, okay, when I grass this thing, yeah, you could probably go ahead and say it's going to get, you know, softer or it's going to get more severe. But you got to take into all the stuff on the surrounds, right? Like when we did LA Country Club South, when you're up against the backdrop of 30-story buildings, right, it changes your perception of everything. You know, you think this green, the the scale, it's the scale. Exactly. I feel like scales misunderstood because you could, you know, that's big scale in the distance versus if if it was an open field, it would look completely, the scale would look completely different. Exactly. Exactly. So I think, and what you're saying there is, I think it just depends on your surrounds to understand like, what's it going to be? Is it going to be more severe? Is it going to be less severe? The surrounds, the scale of it, the spatial context, all that stuff comes into play. And it's hard to be able to understand like, what you're going to do is it going to get softer? Is it going to get more, you know, abrupt? So yeah. when it's a bigger, when there's bigger scale around, it's going to get softer when you get grass on it. Uh, you could probably say that. I mean, and when it's smaller scale around, just generally speaking. Yeah, and I, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be able to think back that far, you know, and be able to, you know, discern one or the other. But I mean, and, and it could flip flop too. Sometimes you think it would be what that, you know, that it's going to be more severe with the uh, more surrounds. Uh, or taller surrounds in some places it could be the opposite of that but it could also it could flip-flop on you right it's hard like when we did swanee right the nine hole swan your view shed off of some of those greens you're looking for what 50 miles or something you know that ha- that has to change the perception of what you're looking at because you're looking at 180 degrees or ever how far your peripheral vision can can go from left to right right but you're trying to discern whether the six thousand square foot green is going to look more severe or less severe after it's grassed it's like You've got all this other stuff going on. I think it's almost virtually impossible. It's almost like you need to have like a big black tarp that you hang up behind every green. 
that you uh, stare at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then everyone would look the same. You'd be, you'd be like a weatherman, like with the, you know, they're at the green board or whatever <laughs> they call that stuff. You know, you're just pointing out there to nothing. You know, and over time, obviously, you get a little bit better at it. But mm-hmm. I think there's always going to be an element of that that's going to like change how you view it. And it could be the sun, right? Because sometimes you view stuff, and that's why I think being in the field is very important, right? Is you can walk that same if you're walking the same golf hole every day at two o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to miss fifty percent of the interest. And we've done that stuff. We've done like the first hole at Boston Golf Club. We were there. We we're working it, working it. And it's kind of one of the last holes. And we'd always go by that area. It wasn't until the fall had come and some crabgrass was sitting on this face of where they went to drill a test well. So they made a flat pad to bring in the rig for the test well. So they just flipped up some dirt behind it. Then through the summer and fall, you know, some crabgrass and stuff came in. And then as the sun got lower and the crabgrass turned color, it kind of showed off as like, man, that would be really cool. We could put some bunkers there. And it was literally right off the tee. So there's two bunkers you see off the tee at the first hole at Boston Golf Club. That's how they came about. It was just because over time and walking it and then seeing it in different light, it changes it. So the light's going to have different seasons, different different seasons, too, because it's the color. We we react to color. That's why, you know, uh, warm season grass golf courses are generally somewhat boring from an aesthetic standpoint because it's the same color, same textures, same tones. Right. That's why, you know, when you start to go dormant, a golf course becomes more interesting because you have different colors. I right? think it's crazy any golf course overseas. It's a waste of time and money, I think. It's a, I think the golf course looks cooler, plays better when storming. It's just just crazy to me. I agree. Um, I so you brought up the West Palm Beach project earlier. Hope to, another hometown project. Yeah, it's the, the whole year. Yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah. So uh, that'll start. Hopefully it'll start. You know, they, they had a, a huge uh, fundraising. And uh, I think they've hit their target, and it's going through permitting at, the, at this point in time. And we're hoping maybe by June first we'll be in the ground. So we'll be working these two jobs at the same time. So Gil and I were talking about it the other day. So it's pretty simple, Gil, because it rains every day here west of the Turnpike, you know, in the afternoon. And our site here is a little bit heavier, heavier, sandier soils, right? And that is pure sugarcane sand. So we actually need the rain there to shape. And here we don't need the the rain. So summer we'll shape will be here perfect. It'll be perfect. We'll shape here in the morning. And it'll rain, and we'll go down the West Palm, and we'll shape there in the afternoon. You know, it'll work out perfect. <laughs> but, um, no, it's a, it's a beautiful site. There's a reason that, you know, Dick Wilson, when he built that golf course, and I forget when it was probably the 50s or something, right, picked that site. The ground is unbelievable. You know, rolling terrain like that on 200 acres and just bouncing all over the place at, you know, 10 to, you know, 15-foot elevation changes, <laughs> pure sand. It's just to find that you know, five minutes from – West Palm Beach Airport, five minutes to the beach and right off of I-95. It's like one of the guys involved said he's been looking for a piece of ground uh, in anywhere in Florida for like the past 10 or 15 years. And he was looking all over Florida for something like that. And here it was, you know, 15 minutes from his house. I mean, that's why I kind of think like there's this just massive opportunity for municipal golf is it's similar vein Cobbs Creek which you guys are doing is like you don't get the, these pieces of ground with the proximity to major metropolitan areas just don't exist anymore no you're right and look at all that stuff right it would actually be a really good business for somebody that to, to just manage specifically the PGA of America or somebody like that like that to get in the management of these municipal they courses pick the right ones pick the right ones I mean you, you said it, you know West Palm's a great one 
Cobb's Creek is a great one, right? I think Tom did, you know, what's that, Memorial Park, right? Memorial, yeah. You know, another great project. There's a bunch project. in Chicago that uh, they're exactly. right on the lake that you could make. I mean, there's the Sydney Maravitz in Chicago. It's a nine-hole on the lake. I used to play at five in the morning before work, and it's like I just walk around and be like, this could be one of the five best nine-hole golf courses in the country, yep. you know? And, and look at whatchamacallit. Look at uh, – you know, Will Smith and those guys are doing yeah. for National Link Trust in D.C. You know, they have the leases of those golf courses, you know, and they're talking about repurposing some of them and moving things around. And, you know, eventually once they get, you know, underfoot and they get the you know, donation money and stuff like that, they're going to have three great properties in, in D.C. proper. You know, that's awesome. That's what it should be. You know? And that's what I mean, that's the cool thing about the D.C. project was that, that was like the goal from the outset was create the model municipal golf <laughs> they put so much effort into the design aspect of it. And it, it just, you know, I feel like municipal golf's turning a little bit, you know, but there's a long way to go. But if we're going to introduce people to golf, you know, it shouldn't be on, you know, if I was going to introduce somebody to coffee, it shouldn't be the same as me taking somebody to a gas station at 10 p.m. and giving them a cup of coffee. Yeah, you know, right. like, you want to give a nice cup you know, of Cuban municipal coffee. Municipal golf should be the most interesting and that's, I think, like a lot of people will say, go about design process and say, hey, this is municipal golf. Don't get too crazy. But in a way, it should be crazier than any golf. You're right. I think what's happened is, is that, and you hear it all the time, like, you know, people, you know, uh, downgrade it or, uh, you know, criticize it and they call it muni. It's muni golf. Like muni golf has become this bad, you know, stereotype. Like, oh my God, that, that was a bit muni. You know, whatever that means. I don't even know what it means. But maybe what's happened is the management end of things, the thought process of things have, have turned that, that Muni Golf into a real thing. But like we're saying with all these projects we're talking about, it's trying to turn Muni Golf into a different name, into fun, into parks, into communities, right? Into a place to grow the game. And, and that's important. And, and it can be, you know, great design elements, playability, walking, like a conversation, you know, a couple of weeks ago about, you know, clubs that don't let you walk. I mean, it's insane. Right. I mean, you have to have all that stuff. It's a social aspect, right, which always gets lost. Golf is extremely social. Right. There's nothing better than, you know, going into a golf property or a golf course or wherever you're going and meeting people. Right. Playing golf for four hours. Right. It's it's the best. Well, I think that's part of the magic of short courses is that, you know, it brings everybody together even more because the where people diverge when they're walking together on a golf course is off the tee. And if you get rid of the tee shot, then you're never not with the group that you're playing with. And that's why everybody has so much fun yeah. at ends of days having beers, playing a short course. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is you don't have to take so many clubs. You can actually carry a beer. Right. So that helps as well. But no, you're right. It's all those different aspects. Right. It's I mean, I, I play in an event every year where we start the first nine holes you play is on a par three. But it's a great way in 45 minutes to get the meat. The four guys play some golf with them, with the three guys, right? Play golf with them, understand their abilities, and be able to then go out and play, you know, the, the regular scramble on the golf course. But it's a ton of fun. You know, we need more of that. So, and I think we talked about it before is that it's like golf has, has lost a little bit because, and we can use it in the terms of like basketball, right? I think we were, when we were going over this before, it's like, you know, kids will grab a basketball to go to the court. It doesn't matter how many people there are, right? They'll figure out a way to play. You know, two, three, four, five, six. Even 21, 32. 20, exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, and, you know, half-court games, two on yeah. three. It, it doesn't matter, right? They'll figure it out. When it comes to golf, the feeling has always been, or at least up till you know, now, has gotten into, like, the standardization. Everything has been standardized, you know, from golf. Like, you have to play 18 holes. 
you have to have returning nines, right? Everything has become standardized. And I think it's kind of watered down the game, you know, kind of dumbed it down a little bit more and lost the excitement, right? This is so many of the best courses, for example, don't have returning nines, yeah. you know? Let, let, hey, let, like I said, let's go to Marion and talk about anything yeah. but typical, right? Yeah. You know, you're crossing the road twice. Your last par five is the fourth hole. You play 13 and you walk across the entry road. You walk across one tee to get to 14. The first tee is right up against the, uh, the um, what's we call it, the patio. So you hear people clanking their forks when you're teeing up your ball and then they stop and you hit a shot. And we go to a lot of clubs and like one club now that I play a lot of golf out, they're talking about expanding their patio at, at this, you know, kind of restaurant halfway house area, which is extremely popular, a great spot to gather and watch people. Well, if we expand it, then we have to move the tee. No, you don't have to move the tee. You want to put it right there. Again, like we were talking about with opening up play quarters and seeing people, you want to be there. You want to be the person having, having a beer and your friends teeing off. Or you want to be the guy teeing off. Right. That, that's the fun part about golf. And it's just I think over time, it's just been lost, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, so then people don't want to be uncomfortable with people. But then you listen to pros that are like, well, I'm excited to be nervous tomorrow. You know, if I if I wasn't nervous, then what am I doing playing golf? Yeah. I mean, I think I think it, it makes you every so often. Right. You have to dig down and get out of your comfort zone and whatever it is. Right. Whether it's in work, you know, personal, whatever it is in life, it's always good to get outside of your comfort zone. So to be put outside of your comfort zone and with people watching you and be able to pull it off, you're going to be more confident. And that's important. How are you outside your comfort zone just in general with work these days versus when you guys started? I think much better. I think when we first started, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so you, you have to, but it, it, you know, it takes time, right? We're all different people. Everybody's different, mm -hmm. right? You have strengths, you have weaknesses, and you have to understand how to, you know, break down some of those, you know, weaknesses and be able to, you know, move forward in life. You know, it's no different than like when you're a kid and you didn't want to eat the peas, right? You find out later on, peas are good. <laughs> can you tell us the, can you tell the caveman construction how it came about? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, we were started, it was a long, and oddly enough, you know, we're going back to the club where caveman construction first was, the the, uh, uh, the phrase was coined. Uh, is it Rolling Green, right? So we were doing work at Rolling Green. We were brought in by the committee to go ahead and rehab one of the greens and some greenside bunkers, et cetera. And it really wasn't favorable for the superintendent. Like he almost didn't want us there and tried everything he possibly could not to have us there, right? And since we were trying to do it, you know, very low cost, right? We were just basically doing it ourselves with a couple guys from the staff and the tools, right? Like why should we pay a contractor to come in to bring shovels and rakes when, they got a maintenance facility full of shovels and rakes and backhoes and everything, right? It doesn't make any sense. We're one little project. Well, the maintenance staff leaves every day at like 2.30 or 3 o'clock. So we're out there and bunker shaped and, you know, we're kind of getting ready. And we're like, well, where are the tools? It's like 3.30. Well, there's no tools. Because the maintenance, they took them in, they locked them up. So now we're, we're like, we have no tools. So at that point in time, you know, Bill Kittleman, uh, who was the old pro at Marion, and still works with us, Bill's, you know, uh, in his 80s, but still a great mentor to both Bill, Gil and I. And uh, so Bill is out there. And he's just looking at it. So he goes and grabs like a stick or something, right? And he goes and kind of carves in the uh, sand line, you know, at the top edge of the bunker. And he carves it in. It looked awesome. And he walks back and he has a uh, stick in his hand. He throws it to the ground. And he's like, Jesus Christ, what are, what are we, a bunch of goddamn cavemen? <laughs> so Gil and I have always took to that name. 
And Bill added several other like funny, funny phrases about different stuff. So when we decided that, hey, maybe we should look at just basically starting, you know, a separate, you know, company that was our designated shaping team and just kind of run it as a separate business for insurance purposes and sake of ease and things like that. We were trying to come up with a name and then we eventually came up with, you know, caveman construction. Coming up with names, the hardest thing in the world to do. It can be, you know, most people are like, uh, what's your initial, yeah. you know, oh, what's your initial? Okay. You know, we'll be, uh, A and J construction. You know, it's like there's zero creativity in that. Right. But yeah, if it has, a, if it has a story behind it, I think it's well worth, you know, you know, exploring and going with it. Yeah, know? but my I've got a different LLC name for my company, but I we named it after my uh, my dog's toy. Well, there you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> we called the do- toy Cl- Mr. Cluckers because yeah. it's like a rooster or something. That's that's perfect. And yeah. So we got Cluck Media. Yeah, so that's that's perfect. You know, <laughs> hey, we're trying to have fun. Like you can't take yourself that serious. You know, what are you well, going to make the key. it? Like- that maybe that's the thing. If if you want to hire somebody and you want to have fun, look at look at what their names are. If they're very buttoned up, you know, yeah. if they sound like a law firm. I can have fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's it going to be? Like Farnsworth Financial or something? You know what I mean? It's like, that's nothing. All right. I I know you got to run, so I want to be... I'm not running anywhere. I got to walk. This is part one. Part one. Who knows when part two will ever be recorded? That's fine. Part one of 100. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was a lifetime goal. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Meg Atkins and Garrett Morrison. And as a quick reminder, be sure to check out our events. Go to our pro shop at www.thefriedegg.com. We have released the Meadowbrook and the Rolling Green event. I think there's a couple, like maybe less than five spots left at Meadowbrook and Detroit. And uh, Rolling Green in Philadelphia, there are a few spots left there that's called the Cheesecake. Those are both in June, and then in a couple weeks, we should have some new events rolling out. We have Davenport and Blue Mound. Davenport in Iowa and Blue Mound in Milwaukee. So look for uh, more events and hope to see you out there this summer. And thank you again for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Thank you.